My name is Sarah Harrison. I am a technical advisor on mental health and psychosocial support at the IFRC Reference Centre for Psychosocial Support. And you are listening to Heartbeat of Humanity, a podcast series for staff and volunteers in the Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement, working with mental health and psychosocial support services. This episode is part of the mini-series on the potentially scalable psychological intervention called Problem Management Plus. This mini-series has been released to time with the recent Intervention Journal Special Edition on scalable psychological interventions, to which a number of IFRC Psychosocial Centre staff contributed, with articles based on recent research or activities. You may have heard other episodes on this topic, with Colombian Red Cross, recorded in Spanish, and an episode on adapting Problem Management Plus trainings to an online format. In this episode, we explore with Dr. Michelle Engels, a technical MHPSS advisor at the IFRC Psychosocial Centre, the process behind the cultural adaptation of a group version of PM Plus for Syrian refugees residing in Jordan and Turkey. However, before we begin, I would like to take a few minutes to explain what Problem Management Plus is. Problem Management Plus, or PM Plus, is one of the approaches that falls within the broad category of low-intensity psychological interventions, also known as potentially scalable psychological interventions. It was developed by WHO and tested with partners in Pakistan, Nepal and Kenya. It comprises of three main components and is grounded in Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, or CBT, which is one of the approaches under psychology. The components are stress management, behavioural changes, also known as get going, keep doing, and strengthening social support. It consists of five structured sessions that can be facilitated with an individual, so done one-on-one, and with a group called Group Problem Management Plus with an optional follow-up session some weeks later. To aid with the dissemination and uptake of the Problem Management Plus technique, the intervention is aimed to be provided by a trained helper or a facilitator. And this is someone who may not necessarily have a formal mental health or psychosocial support professional background. PM Plus helpers or facilitators should be supervised and mentored by a psychologist or a psychotherapist. PM Plus was developed to help people with depression, anxiety and stress-related symptoms, which also includes their treatment, and it can be applied to improve aspects of mental health and psychosocial well-being, no matter how severe people's problems are. Please look out for another podcast episode where we introduce and explore the topic of scalable psychological interventions on this Heartbeat of Humanity podcast channel. So thank you for joining us, Michelle, for this episode. The first question I have for you is, can you tell us a little bit more about the paper and the core findings? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me as well, Sarah. So the paper that we wrote for the journal um, intervention was looking at the cultural adaptation of a low-intensity group psychological intervention called Group Problem Management Plus for Syrian Refugees. The work was actually undertaken as part of the Strengths Consortium, 
Um, and this consortium is exploring how to scale up psychological interventions with Syrian refugees across a number of different countries. What we present in the paper is just a part of that process, which is looking at the results of conducting this cultural adaptation process um, in two specific contexts, one being in Jordan in camp settings and the other being in Turkey in urban settings. Um, the work was done by mental health and psychosocial support teams uh, from International Medical Corps in Jordan country office um, and also from the Refugee Association in Turkey and the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the Reference Centre for Psychosocial Support, helped to lead the implementation of the process as well. Ultimately, based on the methodology that we followed, we proposed a number of changes to the intervention manual, but also to the training curriculum and the implementation protocols for the intervention. Um, and these changes were incorporated then into the final version of Group Problem Management Plus in both those countries. And why did you choose to implement Group Problem Management Plus? Because um, there's also the individual focus version that the Strengths Consortium, I believe, is also testing, but in other countries. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, initially, we were on the fence, but we were really relying on the expertise of the two implementing partners in Jordan and Turkey. Um, and initially, based on preliminary conversations with staff who were very heavily involved in programming, they all mentioned that they thought group problem management plus would be more culturally appropriate for the context. So we had assumed that that might be the ideal option, but we also wanted to check that out. So when we went through the cultural adaptation process, we conducted key informant interviews and focus group discussions with a range of key stakeholders, including community members, but also service providers and policymakers. Um, and the general consensus across all those different groups was that there was a preference towards group-based interventions, um, with many people saying that they felt it bolstered social support and it helped them to feel a bit more a part of the, their community. Um, there were exceptions to that, though. Some people were saying that in, if the information being discussed was highly personal and highly mm -hmm. sensitive, then in that case, they would prefer an individual format. Um, but given that Problem Management Plus was focused more on practical problems, um, yeah. ultimately Group PM Plus seemed like the better option. But it seemed that the cultural adaptation process then was quite important. Um, for, for both the, the Syrian refugees residing in Jordan and also in Turkey? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was a really crucial problem. Um, it was a crucial approach that we took, really, to just find out how to make the intervention more effective. We know that, um, you know, these evidence-based interventions, they will become more effective if, if they're culturally adapted. And that's something that we know based on a lot of research that's been conducted um, but often what's not done is, um, you know, especially in research, there isn't um, a practical breakdown of steps of what that actually looks like in practice. How do you culturally adapt? How do you make sure that your intervention is um, contextually sound and appropriate? Um, and so we thought it was really important, A, to do that process, to get the information that we need to make sure it really is appropriate to the culture and to the context but also to, you know, document that process and, 
you know, help to provide a bit of guidance to practitioners who might be interested in conducting similar work. And can you tell us a little bit about the methods then that you use? Because cultural adaptation sounds quite a big and, and fancy phrase, but what does yeah. it actually <laughs> consist of if, if someone else was to do it in, a, in another context, for example? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the process that we went through was quite stringent, and I will say it was based also on research. Uh, So in particular, we started off with what we called a rapid qualitative assessment. And again, it's a a lot more complicated jargon, but what we're talking (laughs) about there is free listing interviews, it's key informant interviews, and it's focus group discussions. And usually these three things are quite commonly done um, by non-governmental and international non-governmental organizations. Mm. Um, And so we use that data to collect a wide range of information from key stakeholders, like I mentioned before, community members, policy makers, and also people who are working very actively with Syrian refugees in those two countries. Following that, we then did an additional process, which perhaps is a little bit more unique um, for mental health and psychosocial support actors, but it was looking at cognitive interviews. Um, And what we meant by that, and we actually only did that process in Turkey, but it was really just giving a space for in-depth look into the content of the intervention. So we gathered together a small group of community members and key stakeholders, And we actually asked them to look at areas of the manual that had already been identified as potentially cross-culturally problematic. Um, And we went through sentence by sentence, looked at all the different pictures in the manual and got their feedback on, you know, is it appropriate? Is it relevant? Does it make sense? You know, what could we do to change it to help, help it make more sense? Um, And that provided a huge amount of information for us. And then what we did, the final step in that process then was to bring all that information together from the rapid qualitative assessment to the cognitive interview. We Mm. brought all of it together and then presented it to another range of key stakeholders. And these were people who were working very actively with Syrian refugees. And we conducted what we call a cultural adaptation workshop And it was an opportunity for these key stakeholders to, you know, review all the different findings, to present some recommendations for what changes should be made, um, and to actually start changing the material in real time together. Um, And so based on getting all that different source of feedback on all those different people in the room and as part of the dialogue, that's how we, you know, approach this cultural adaptation process. So complicated, but also something that was quite feasible and quite possible. Mm. And can you give us an example of of something that was changed as a result of this process in in the manual? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just a simple example was looking at some of the illustrations. Um, So previously, Group Problem Management Plus had been validated for use in um, Nepal and in Pakistan. And the images were very culturally relevant to those contexts. And when we presented that in the cognitive interviews, people were saying to us, those pictures don't apply to Syrian refugees. They don't look like what a Syrian person would look like. Um, And so we made small changes actually just to clothing that was being worn. Mm. Um, And also even just the backdrop, um, the background setting of the images as well. 
You know, there were some things that just didn't look like, you know, what a refugee camp in Jordan might look like or what an mm-hmm. urban setting in Turkey might look like. So we made those changes. Um, and then I guess looking more at language as well, you know, it was really important for us to explore, you know, what we call the cultural idioms of distress, you know, how people express um, psychosocial distress. And so we made changes to some of the terminology that we were using there. And one of the changes was, you know, how Problem Management Plus, the the name of it, how that was Mm. actually translated in Arabic because the direct translation didn't quite make sense and was sending a different message to what was being intended. So that's just some examples of the types of adaptations that we made. Thank you. And then what were some of the core problems or the coping strategies that were identified? by the participants, both in Turkey and in Jordan? Yeah. So I'll I'll let my colleagues speak to the site-specific differences, but one of the things that we looked at in our paper is we presented the results that we found in Turkey and the results that we found in Jordan separately. Mm -hmm. But there were some commonalities across those two sites. Um, And so interestingly, and perhaps not surprisingly, one of the core problems that we found across both Jordan and Turkey um, was, you know, emotional and psychological distress broadly. The causes of that seemed to be a bit different across sites, though. In Jordan, people seemed to refer to, you know, ongoing uncertainty about their future um, and the challenges that they're facing in meeting their basic needs as being the primary um, causes that are leading to their distress. In Turkey, people were reporting that it was actually pre-migration experiences, um, things that they referred to as traumatic. They were saying that these were the things that were still impacting their level of distress now. Mm. Um, Another thing that we found is, you know, there were a lot of economic and work-related issues that were reported Um, as being quite core in terms of the problems experienced by Syrian refugees, both in Turkey and in Jordan. Um, And we found that this was actually a really important finding for Problem Management Plus, because while it isn't a livelihoods intervention, and it certainly doesn't work to direct these, um, to target these problems Mm -hmm. directly, it still is based on very practical problems. And this is an example um, of what practical problems could look like. Um, so it was interesting to see that commonality across settings. Yeah. In terms of coping strategies, that did differ a little bit between camp and urban settings. But in both one, countries? Yes, yeah, yeah, sorry, in both countries. So in Turkey, yeah. we were looking predominantly at urban settings and mm. in Jordan, we were looking at the camp-based settings. And what we found, though, one really interesting finding was level of social support was slightly different um, in that in Turkey there was less social support in those urban settings where actually in camp-based settings, there seemed to be more social support. So Mm -hmm. it was quite an interesting finding and also helped a little bit to justify bringing people together in groups and the importance of that. Yeah, I think it also shows how important the daily living context is. Um, Absolutely. For the describe all the differences between, between the Syrian refugee experience in Turkey and also in Jordan for the intervention. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the other really important thing to mention about cultural adaptation is it's, you know, it's obviously very important to look at culture, but contextual factors are just as important to consider, you know, and looking at, you know, post-migration stresses that people might be experiencing depending on the context that they're living in. Um, Those are really crucial things to explore. 
And why was writing the article important for the authors? Um, like other than documenting the process, but but you're one of the authors amongst amongst many others. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think we found it really important to just explore what that process looks like in practice, yeah. um, because there has been such an investment in you know these potentially scalable psychological mm-hmm. interventions, but perhaps not as much guidance into how to adapt that into your culture and into your context. So we wanted to provide an example of how that was done. But another thing that we wanted to do is um, cultural adaptation work that has been described elsewhere tends to focus on one country. And so it's adapting an intervention at the country level. Mm. Um, Whereas what we try to do in our approach is actually look at, you know, a process that would apply to a group of people, in this case, Syrian refugees more broadly, but in two different contexts. And we think that that presents some important implications um, for resource allocation, actually, um, that that could be a bit more of a budget-friendly way of doing things. Yeah. I guess one of the more technical questions from a from a research, but also from an implementation perspective, is if you have these interventions that are somewhat standardised, like group problem management plus and then you do the cultural adaptation process how much can you change it without it it questioning the feasibility or the effectiveness um you mentioned at the beginning that actually doing the cultural adaptation process can help with the efficacy of the intervention in in with a particular population group in this case syrian refugees but there must be a limit i presume as to how much you can change something before you can say look actually it's a quite different intervention or approach Yeah, that's a really good point. And I should say that this cultural adaptation process was the start of then a testing process. So the culturally adapted materials that were created as part of this process were then tested in both Jordan and Turkey and also in a variety of different other countries. So it is a good point that sometimes, you know, depending on the level of changes you make, it can actually potentially lead to changes in outcomes. Again, one interesting thing is that we do know cultural adaptation tends to increase effectiveness of interventions, but there is that balance that needs to be made. Um, And that's something that we try to explore in the paper by looking at different frameworks um, of cultural adaptation. And the one in particular that we used is called the Burnell framework. Now, I won't go into details because all of that is in the paper, but Mm. it provides a bit of a frame for the types of things to adapt. And one of those adaptation subsections includes content. Um, so it's not to say that it's not to say that you can't make radical changes to an intervention, but if you were to say pull out something in an intervention, then you would definitely need to test to see if that's still effective, because then effectively you're actually changing what your intervention was. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the changes that we made didn't actually change the strategies. It was more about how the strategies were presented, how they were described, and in particular, how they were um, illustrated by use of a, a case example in the in the instance of group problem management plus. Mm. And then my final question for you um, is is based on the findings from from the paper and from this research in general. What recommendations would you and the other authors make to practitioners and to researchers? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, one of the core findings is that, you know, cultural adaptation 
is actually possible. It is feasible, even if you're working in settings um, where you have limited access to resources. Um, and I think that's a really core takeaway message because, you know, like you said, when you hear that frame, cultural adaptation and rapid qualitative assessment, <laughs> it's very it's scary, very, scary. <laughs> very, very daunting. Um, but what I found going through this process and really coming at it actually from a practitioner lens, you know, I was really impressed by how practical it is and how many of these things we actually already use, um, but mm. it's maybe using them in a more strategic way. Um, and the other thing that I'd say is just, you know, I think it's really important as well for researchers to continue to, you know, publish papers that show practically how things can be done um, with strategic use of resources, um, because I think those are the things that practitioners really need in their work to help make their roles more effective. Yeah. And how long, this is another, sorry, the last, last question. Yeah, sure. <laughs> how, how long did uh, did the process take in each country? Like if you, if someone was to start a cultural adaptation process of an intervention, it might be a, one of the, the potentially scalable ones, or it could be another one. How much time would you recommend it, it, they should budget or or allocate for it? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So actually, it wasn't as extensive as what you might think. And, you know, one thing that I'll, you know, kind of say as a caveat is that, you know, for, for research, obviously, you go through a very stringent process. And because this was part of a research project, we had to do added kind of measures to make sure that we were really following that due process. But in the end, it actually took us three weeks in Jordan to collect that data and about six weeks to collect that data in Turkey. I think the discrepancy in terms of time between those two contexts can be explained primarily by the urban context in Turkey. It's a lot more difficult mm -hmm. actually to bring people together and to collect that data. Um, whereas in Jordan, being a camp-based setting, it was a lot easier to access that population and to bring people together. The one thing that was a bit more complicated, and again, it's because it's part of research, was yeah. seeking ethical approvals. You know, that process actually yeah. was, um, you know, it took a lot of time, but it was also a very worthwhile and a very um, important part of the process. But in terms of the actual data collection, it, it didn't take as long as you might think. It kind of sounds about the same length as if you were doing a more in-depth assessment, actually. It would probably yeah. take around about the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we were very fortunate in terms of the implementing partners that we were working with as part of this process. They mm -hmm. were also both very experienced in conducting mental health and psychosocial support related assessments. Um, so for them, this wasn't such a unique process. They were very much used to it. We still, of course, needed to train the staff and make sure mm. that they were, you know, up to date in terms of the types of questions we were asking because we were asking very specific things. Um, but they were very experienced and, and already came with a lot of skill set in terms of, you know, interviewing questions. Okay. Um, thank you, Michelle, for joining us today on this episode on the cultural adaptation of Group Problem Management Plus. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. You have been listening to The Heartbeat of Humanity, a podcast series for Red Cross, Red Crescent Movement staff and volunteers about mental health and psychosocial support. In this episode, we have been exploring the cultural adaptation process of Group Problem Management Plus in Jordan and Turkey with Dr. Michelle Engels from the IFRC Psychosocial Centre. 
You can find more resources about mental health and psychosocial support on the IFRC Psychosocial Centre website. Resources include manuals, webinars, policy documents, programme materials, educational videos and information about upcoming trainings and workshops. My name is Sarah Harrison and I hope you enjoyed listening to this Heartbeat of Humanity podcast. Remember that mental health matters.